pleasingly exciting, dramatic rattle of the glasses as we sat down. Um, I am Cathy Rensenbrink. It's such a delight to be here. Well done, everyone, for getting out of bed, including my husband, who drove me. And when I woke him up at seven, he did say, it's very early for a Sunday morning, isn't it? But um, I would not be anywhere else in the world other than right here, uh, partly because I'm so excited about being able to talk about this amazing book with its author, Sophie Ratcliffe. It's called The Lost Properties of Love. I loved it the first time I read it, and I loved it even more when I reread it yesterday. So, can we give Sophie another really warm, welcoming round of applause? Thank you for joining us, Sophie. Um, it's such a rich book, so much goes on. Shall I get, hit you with the question to tell us what it's about? Why not? It's Sunday morning, as you say, <laughs> at 10 a.m. What's it all about? Um, it's really lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for being here. Um, what's it about? Well, so, as Cathy said, it's, um, Patrick said, it's, it's a memoir. Um, it's about love, and it's about death, and it's about trains, and it's about me. But um, it's a memoir with a difference. There's a lot going on. But I think uh, the central thing is I wanted to really write honestly about the things we hide mm. from other people, including those closest to us. And I wanted to do that without ending up in the divorce courts. Um, <laughs> so far, so good. Uh, and um, the central thing that I wanted to be really honest about was, was loss. My dad died when I was 13, and he was diagnosed as being terminally ill when I was three. And I, my, my senses and what I grew to understand was that grief doesn't always behave well. I wanted to write honestly about how grief makes us behave and that grief can make us harder as well as softer and grief can make us take risks. And so that's the, one of the things I wanted to write about. And as a result, I write about um, how I sometimes find it hard to be part of a happy family. Um, and I write about an affair that I nearly had and I write about those kinds of things. And I write about some of the risks I took as a teenager, some sort of risk-taking behavior to do with sex. And I do all this thinking about all of this on a train from Hull, kind of your neck of the woods down to Oxford. So I'm thinking about all this as a married mother of two <coughs> on a train. So it's sort of brief encounter, but with more sex and Lego and fingers. <laughs> um, then, as you said, there's a lot going on. The other thing I wanted to be honest about is that imagination is part of our reality. So while it's a memoir about stuff that happened, it's also a memoir about things we imagine. And so my story of love, death, trains is entwined with the story of two other, other women's stories of love and death and trains. And the first one of those is uh, a, a, an imaginary Russian socialite, Anna Karenina. So I write about her experience and also a real American journalist called Kate Field and as the book unfolds I explain how these the three of us are entwined sort of mm. like Russian dolls mm -hmm. as our train journeys cross. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to be honest about how sometimes loss and mess are really funny as well as really sad so um, and so I wanted to be I wanted to find, talk honestly about the humor and I think humor and grief can be quite taboo uh, and um, people have said it's brave, but they say that about naked skydiving and all sorts of things. But uh, <laughs> uh, it contains at least one orgy. Uh, so this is X-rated Sunday morning stuff. I don't think I'm going to read that. Uh, and, uh, and a really, really good 
description of a buffet trolley on a Chilton Railway service. Yeah. It's a joke. Really good, really good. Yeah. I'm very excited about buffet trolleys. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the, uh, it was like someone just picked all my favourite subjects and then wrote a book for me. Love, death, sex... And trains. trains. Well, quite. Yeah. Because I am interested in trains down to the granular detail of being very interested because they redesigned. So I live in Cornwall, but travel quite a lot to London and other bits of the country. And of course, all the trains are quite different. And they've redesigned some of the trains and the staff are very cross about it because they now have to wheel this buffet around. I'm sort of endlessly fascinated. Um, and I'm also, there's quite a lot of dishwasher in this book as well. Because also, I really love domesticity. Like, I sometimes think all I really want to read about is people having arguments about whose turn it is to stack up the dishwasher. Yeah, and how other people manage it. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot about hanging out the laundry yeah. and those, those little details that can crush us. I'm really interested in the complexity of living in time and space with other people. I mm -hmm. think it's fascinating. Um, there's this guy called Roland Barthes who writes about the, the difficulty of doing that. And he says the only people who've got it right are a load of monks in Greece who have this thing called iriorhythmia, where they can all have their own rhythms. But we're, I don't get that. You don't get it with small yeah, children, no, do you? No. I'm having my own rhythms today, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to sleep. I mean, that just doesn't work, does it? Um, why don't you read us a little bit? Okay. Um, there, maybe there's there's... Some sad bits later on, maybe I might read some of that later on, but I think it might help to start with the bit I described, that I'm on the train from Hull to Oxford, and I'm thinking about someone else. I'm thinking about someone uh, who I had a relationship with. They are much older than me, and they are now dying. So this section of the book is written from 2016, so I'm on a train and I'm addressing this other person. I still dream about ye. We are at a Christmas party, in a lift, eating a pizza on a bench in Battersea. We are an unlikely couple, even in dream world. An older man with a camera bag and a newspaper, a not young, but younger woman, wearing a leopard print top. I wake and hope to dream again. It's nine years since I've seen your face or heard your voice. I don't have either of your numbers anymore, and if I did, I wouldn't call. But the other day, I tried to find you again, circling the streets of your city on my computer screen in a 360-degree spin, then closer up, zooming in on the house numbers as if I might, if I looked hard enough, catch sight of you through the window, walking away. Not that your face was much to write home about. Not that I could write home about it in any case. Happily married women don't write home about other men's faces. There's a flash of names beneath the bindweed. Shipham valves, one high, Atlas leisure homes. Then levelling out to follow the motorway, chasing the cars past the Humber. The light changes, turns brighter over the stretch of brown with its drag of sand. I open my bag and look for my book. I turn the title page. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, let's talk about Anna Karenina, shall we? Okay. Um, tell us more about... Uh, there's a bit in somewhere where you say about you're on your fourth copy of Anna Karenina. Yeah. You keep losing... Uh, you keep losing them. Tell us about... Um, tell us about Anna Karenina and how you wanted to weave 
her story through the book. Yeah, so that was the first line of Anna Karenina that I'm reading on the train. That's what I'm up to. Um, and that's what I was up to, actually. Uh, I've always been fascinated by Anna Karenina. It's not something, and I, I got four copies, and I talk a lot about we read books quite badly sometimes, or we know Anna Karenina without really having read it. But I was fascinated by Anna Karenina, which I read when I was 19 or 20, and I was fascinated by this idea of uh, this woman and her, her having an affair. But I thought about it again differently after having children. Uh, Anna Karenina goes on a train to rescue her brother's marriage. And while she's on that um, journey, she falls in love with someone else. But what struck me as interesting is she's away from her children, for the, well, her child, son, for the first time. So that sense of what happens when a mother is separated in time and space for a moment and maybe recover themselves. Um, this book was not going to be this book at all. It began, I was going to write, I, I teach um, at university, and I was going to write a sort of book about novels. It was going to be much more literary, critical, much more serious, and it wasn't going to have any me in it. But it began because uh, the novelist Nabokov said about Anna Karenina, what was in Anna Karenina's handbag? Anna Karenina, in all her journeys, has a little red handbag. She carries it throughout with her. And one of the things she does before she finally everything goes disastrously, disastrously wrong in her life, and before she jumps in front of a train, Tolstoy says she threw her little red handbag away. That's the thing she does. And so Nabokov asks what was in it. And I was always very interested in this question and uh, this detail, which in some ways doesn't matter, but is, it might tell us more about who someone is. And so I tried to write something about Anna Karenina. From not this book, I was just trying to write a... I thought, I'm going to write about that. Um, and then I wrote... Um, and then I looked at it, and I thought, that sounds really pompous and pretentious, and it's rubbish, and I put it in a drawer. Then um, a few years later, I was mother of two children, and I was going to a meeting with some the sort of people who out-talk you in meetings and intimidate you, and it was early in the morning. We were interviewing someone else. We were around this board table, and I had my handbag, and I was looking for a pen through the handbag, and I found myself muting about stuff. So I pulled out a small plastic maraca. Uh, I was looking at this, and I just what what has happened to me? This space which is meant to belong to me, which is meant to be mine, this sort of myth that nobody should go into a woman's handbag. It's got all this crap in it. There is nothing left. I can't find a pen, my basic implement. And so I later on wrote something. I wrote about Anna Karenina's handbag, and I wrote about my handbag. And that's when I sent that to um, someone to read. So they said, um, I, I really like this, but I'd like more of you. And so the book sort of began to evolve as partly me thinking about her life and why people make decisions to live another mm -hmm. life, why you might step out of the roots of a happy family. And I suppose also I'm interested in reading as another way of kind of having an affair. Mm -hmm. If Anna Karenin has an affair, uh, we can live an alternative life. It's a way of living out the lives we might not mm -hmm. want to have. So that's sort of why, and she is a sort of this, it's, it's crazy to have a, a person who doesn't exist as the beating heart of a book. I did actually go, I clawed out four days uh, from the sort of childcare job to go to Russia. And I decided I wanted to try and relive Anna Karenina's mm -hmm. journey from uh, St, uh, Moscow to St. Petersburg and see what it felt like. I thought, I can't meet this woman but maybe I can travel the same ground. 
uh, and uh, I went to a party. I tried to meet a sort of Vronsky character. Um, I met a drunk Bloomberg journalist who I <laughs> didn't go home with. But I thought I had to get quite far in, in order to make a mess of that. So that's sort of part of the Anna Karenina story. And yeah. I was also very interested in, while well, Tolstoy was busy hammering at Anna Karenina, ooh, more rattling glass, um, that Sophia Tolstoy, his wife, was busy looking after the children, holding it together, dealing with it, and wanting to herself, right, she was a wonderful photographer, but had this experience of huge oppression, and she wrote diaries and diaries, and she said, I am part of the household furniture. And I was very interested in the idea of invisible labor, mm. that I was conscious that I was doing, and that wasn't, and the creative acts that might happen in a home and don't get seen. So Anna Karenina is, I suppose, partly Sophia Tolstoy a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. So Tolstoy, so she used to copy out her husband's diaries. Yes. And imagine copying this out. So imagine you're a wife copying out your husband's diaries and you have to copy out him saying this. So this is, this is Tolstoy. There is no such thing as love, only the physical need for intercourse and the practical need for a life companion. <laughs> yeah. That's quite hardcore, isn't it? Yeah. They made this this kind of this sort of radical authenticity of copying out each other's diaries, uh, and, and Tolstoy's always writing these lists of how he's going to do better and be more vegetarian and more celibate, and then the next thing is slept with a whore. Uh, he's, he's, he's really he's he's fascinating, but he's appalling. He's a, an appalling, amazing monster, mm. and the. The, the book he wrote before Anna Karenina called Family Happiness, and you can see that line going, well, happy families are alike. It's really just about um, how marriage must give up the idea of romantic love. And while he's fascinating, and I, but I do, I'm really interested, there is a truth in this idea of how do you make the idea of love and relationship on time work? How is it possible? And that was one of the things I really wanted to puzzle out mm -hmm. um, as I was in it, as I got to 40. Um, I love my husband very much, but I was thinking, what's, what's the plot of this? We're married now, mm. um, and um, how do we do it? How do we sustain it? And maybe talking about this, I sound a little bit monstrous um, in articulating this, but I was interested that nobody talks that much, or at least I couldn't find people talking clearly about how one holds a relationship together mm -hmm. through the mess and essentially that you're running some sort of small business and mm -hmm. wiping surfaces and bottoms mm -hmm. and jobs and grumpiness and irritation. Um, and I was fascinated by the reality of what happens when the, the romance story mm -hmm. ends. Do you think, well, this is what I think really, so let's okay. see whether you also think this. Do you think as a big reader, part of the problem is your average common or garden happy, happy enough marriage, you know, the you know, the Hello, darling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the happy... Because marriage is complex and yeah. difficult and raising small children is hard and there are ups and downs yeah. and parents die and it's not like you think yeah. it's going to be. Mm. But basically, that doesn't exist in fiction. So if in a novel you meet a happily married couple at the beginning and they're really happily married, you know something bad's going to happen to them. Yeah. One of them's a Russian spy or one of them's about to get... The only way that they genuinely can be ma happily married in fiction is if one of them's about to be killed... So then the other one gets to be sad and has to then work out how to live alone. So that, that, it just doesn't exist in fiction. I've been looking for it, and you don't find it. And I think as someone who 
probably wrongly, tends to look to fiction for a blueprint for life. It's not there. You all, in fiction, is always telling you to go off with some shit Vronsky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, somewhere around the 40s, you start questioning whether that is the sensible <laughs> way to behave. Yeah. And, and pop songs as well. A lot yeah. of the, I'm really, not just sort of uh, high literature narratives, everything from the, the movies that I grew up with, from Dirty Dancing to Stock Aitken and Waterman, are all either about romantic rejection or the ecstasy of falling in love. And I did realise, probably just much later than most, I was a couple of that I didn't realise, I had no idea what this story was going mm. to be or how to, how to live it. And my default was, yeah, I need to create some kind of mm. disaster in here. There need to be a plot point yeah. here. Yeah. So, um, and also, I'm, I'm married to a doctor, so the natural one is Madame Bovary. I've got to kind of, I'm married to a doctor and I read loads of novels. It's not going to play out well. So, so, so in some ways, an act of rescue is to, to write this, to yeah. try and figure it out. Uh, this is one of the first times my husband actually hasn't been sitting in the audience when I've been talking about it. It's quite liberating. <laughs> You say in the book that uh, you talk to a divorce lawyer who tells you a third of marriages break down because of arguments over the chores. Yeah. I, again, I think that's... Like Anna Karenina, I think. So I think I, I probably first read Anna Karenina when I was, what, 16, 17, 18. I swear, I don't think I noticed she had a child. Mm, I just no. didn't notice that. I just noticed the romance. And then reading it now, it, it's all to me. And, ag and again, I think were I younger and read that a third of marriages break down because of arguments over the chores... I would just think, like, nonsense. Or I would think, like, that's old people. That's not going to be me. Yeah. Whereas now I read that statistic and I think only a third. Because yeah. <laughs> surely the chores is before... Even if, like, some marriages break down because of affairs, I bet the affairs are happening because of the chores. Yes. It's like all the chores, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about the fish fingers. Uh, you write so brilliantly about that minutiae of domestica, the fish fingers, the juice. Tell us a bit about that. I think that's it's interesting in the way it's sort of... Played into, it plays into this question of living in time and space. Um, there's, who is it, Sheila Hetty said that um, we write, people, people like laying into people who, women who write memoirs, sort of as a subject, why the, the uh, Nausgaard can write about himself, and this is praised as very honest mm. and raw, and when if, if you are a woman and write, and write about what's around you, you can be seen as moaning or narcissistic or heckling. And she, the, the novelist she, Sheila Hetty says that we write about ourselves because we cannot write a, we cannot write a novel by looking at the toaster. But um, I did really feel at that point um, that I just had myself and the toaster to write about. Mm. There was a whole chunk of this book that didn't make it in, which was about the morning breakfast routine, <laughs> which is, um, so it got a big cut through it. I feel quite sad about that. I really like those four pages because the morning breakfast, it still sodding goes on. <laughs> uh, my husband, who I called in this bit the toastmeister, stands in front of the toaster, which is in front of the cutlery drawer. Yeah. And in some way, with his back to us. Wow, can you hear me still? It's, yeah. I love this. This is amazing. Um, but therefore, it's just kind of this, this jostling of space and how someone might, with their body language... Um, is that creepy? Yeah, it's OK. Yeah. Um, and how those, those resentments build up. And, um, and I was quite terrified about how he was going to cope with reading about, about my levels of irritation yeah. and frustration. 
um, and about how acts of writing can be seen as turning away from that family unit. I find it very consoling to read about someone like Jane Austen who wrote in the room that it is possible and you, you also read about novelists who go to hire a separate room in New York mm. where they go and put on white nose noise headphones and that's how they create their enormous uh, works of art and that just wasn't available to me so very much having to write this in the fragments around the domestic space fish fingers are interesting the cover of the book has on it um, a tampon um, I, the, the cover designer asked me kind of what objects were in the book and we spoke about the objects in the handbag and the mess and the chaos and the continuity of life so it has various objects but the fish finger it struck me as not only interesting because a lot of um, a lot of that sense of desolation of, of feeling like I'm failure, failing a mother getting home from work thinking oh god the fridge is empty it's fish fingers I don't think they're, they're frozen they're frozen food so that's perhaps why it symbolises for me this sense of failed motherhood. I mean, obviously, I'm feeding the children. <laughs> but, but, but metaphorically, there's something so disappointing about this frozen, manufactured object. Do you think there's a sense, again, uh, there's a sense that you... That, all, that this is all life is, often, but that that doesn't belong in high literature? Yeah. I mean, now when I read Anna Karenina, I want more fish finger. But, <laughs> and, of course, she had servants and stuff. But yeah. I want to know what the equivalent... Is, uh, uh, you know, this is what I want now when I read fiction. I want dishwasher. I want fish finger. I want to know what the true stuff is that the author has decided should be beneath our notice. I've been reading quite a lot of writers' diaries recently, and they're usually they're abridged. So, again, someone's made an editorial decision mm. to take out the crap. And I want the crap, basically. I want to read the, I want to read the, the minutiae. I want, I want to read, you know, there was a, a note in one of the diaries I was reading that said, you know, a lot of the, a lot, kind of slightly, I'm paraphrasing, a lot of the whinging is repetitive. I want all that repetitive whinging, and I want to see how it maps yeah. against what else the writer is doing, because I think a lot of writers live in, a, in, a, in, a, in perpetual whinging and kind of aren't allowed to say... <laughs> It's political as well. I mean, I, I felt quite kind of... I, we had a very short discussion before we were coming in about kind of sometimes I find it very difficult to take up space, um, feel that I shouldn't bore people with my lies or it might be boring. And I felt very much that it would be, have been easier uh, to talk to my colleagues and say I've written a book about grief and mountains or <laughs> grief and animals. But it wasn't available to me to yeah. write that book. I couldn't leave the house. So it was grief and fish yeah. finger. So you could have said, I trekked across Alaska trying to think about grief. Yeah. And that would have been... I felt that would have been uh, honoured. I, 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 was, I was concerned that this would be seen as trivial. I was, I was actually a student of mine who uh, was showed me a book called... Um, I think it's called The Aesthetics of Detail, um, and it's about art and the feminine and the idea that who, whose scale of mattering? Why aren't fish fingers? Yeah. And these small details, like who, who says life can exist most fully in small things as well as big things? Um, so I really, I really am fascinated, yeah, by the, the stuff that gets pushed to the side and seen yeah. as unimportant. I've always quite, because I read a lot of grief memoirs and then wrote one, and quite often in the grief memoir, there is this, including ones written by women, there's this big sweeping action so, you know, of, and I've always thought, like, some people respond to something bad happening by going off to Texas and learning how to be rodeo 
you know, ride rodeo horses. Very good memoir called The Wild Other it's by wonderful. Clover Stride. Yeah. And it's wonderful. And there's all these big things, and all I've ever done is lie on the sofa and cry. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I've never been anywhere. When things are really bad, I can't get on the bus to go to Truro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So maybe that's another reason why I really love the book. Would you tell us about, um, can we just stay on Anna Karenina's handbag for a little bit more? Yeah. Tell us about Anna and contraception. Oh. The conversation about contraception. Yeah, well, um, actually, the, the kind of domestic detail in Tolstoy, uh, Anna's sister-in-law, Dolly, um, who Anna's going to save this marriage, Dolly worries a lot about running about out of milk mm -hmm. and whether they're going to run out of milk. So she's worrying. Um, uh, they're having a conversation. So Anna has now left her husband and moved in with Vronsky, and they have a child together, a little girl. Um, and Dolly says to Anna, "What about you? May well have more children. What about the other children?" And Anna says, "There, there won't, there won't be any more children." And Dolly says, "How do you know?" And then Anna says something, and then there's a, a line of asterisks. And I found this really fascinating. And, and Tolstoy was uh, extremely against contraception. Um, and, but the presumption is that in this absence that Anna has explained something um, about the use of... And so I went off and researched early, early contraception. Mm -hmm. So it's probable that she's either been talking about um, a, a sheath, or I think more likely an early diaphragm, which they were known as the womb veil. And in order to make them more sort of attractive for, for, for use, they were advertised very much as something. And this is, this I really can't figure out, were meant to be inserted by the man on, like, on his phallus. To veil the womb. <laughs> to this, was this, is this too much information? This no, is no, more than you wanted about, about contraception. This is, this is how I like to spend my Sunday mornings, <laughs> and I think everyone else here feels the same. About, We're in a safe space. But yeah, so you could buy this mail order, and it was advertised in the wonderful sort of 19th century type, typeface about the womb veil. And I love, I, I kind of, I'm kind of appalled and amused by the heroics of this. But actually, I suppose if you think about the history of contraceptive advertising, how it often has to be seen as extremely heroic or ultra thin yeah. or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, but yeah, I guess my interest in Anna Karenina, uh, in my interest in talking about contraception is those things that are hidden in narratives, are hidden in handbags, because the presumption is that Anna going about would have had her womb veil in her handbag, yeah. ready for these encounters. But the, the, the things that we, yeah, the things that we hide, the messiness of life. And to a certain extent, yeah, I, I was interested in writing one of the hidden things about maternal ambivalence. Um, I uh, write earlier in the book about um, contraceptive failure, having an abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something that is, that is hidden uh, and I wanted to see whether it was possible to write about that. This was before I, had, I met my husband and had children, but it was an important part of talking about the things we hide and different kinds of loss mm -hmm. and grief and the things that are unspoken. Mm -hmm. Would you read us a bit about loss? Sure, yeah. Um, so this is... Um, 
the first bit I read you, I was on the train, and then the book is told through, as I said, a, uh, I'm on a train, but it's told through a series of train journeys. Um, and I flash back in some train journeys to train journeys I took with my dad. Uh, and he used to take me on the Northern Line in London to school and back again uh, when I was under 11. Um, but this chapter is called Ghost Train, um, and I'm thinking about uh, the experience of my father, my father and his death and what happened. And this was strange, strange to write this. Um, and I resisted when in this conversation about when someone said, I want more of you, I want more of you. And they said, what are you not writing about? I said, well, I could write about this. I was going to be writing about Anna Karenina in a handbag. And I said, well, I suppose I could write about my dead dad, but nobody wants another dead dad story. And this person said to me that they did. Um, and so, again, my fear of taking out space, I thought, I don't want to write that story um, because it's, it's dull. It's been said before. But it became actually what this book is about, about the effects of childhood bereavement. So um, this is when I go into, I'm talking about um, the run-up to my father's death and then seeing his body. It seems almost impossible to square the knowledge of the pain that was to come with my 13-year-old preoccupations at the time. If I did not exactly will or wish for my father's death, waiting for it seemed like a sometimes interesting but mostly burdensome sideline to the rest of my life. Looking at my diary, the entries are all about what to wear to Rachel South's Bet Mitzvah disco, how neat my handwriting was, whether I should shave my legs, and if I would get a merit in flute. They let me in alone to see my father's body. He was lying on a plinth bed in the hospice chapel of rest. He was pale, long, his red hair nearly gone, and that which was left had faded to the colour of sand. When I saw him, I wondered at the new burgundy pyjamas. Wherever he was, he wasn't there. Back at home, his sheds and lean-tos struggled in the wind. The rented hearse drove slowly up the road, and we lowered our heads in the crematorium. Relatives bent down to speak to me in the front hall, hunting for words. A friend's father started to talk to me about how it would be from now on. Then his voice broke, and he couldn't go on. I think refreshingly, that he was trying to say that everything wouldn't be all right. They are very sorry for my loss. I am very sorry for him too. He arrived the day my father died, wrapped up in brown paper, and I have felt for him ever since. A grey, damp creature with pilled fur and webbed feet. He wasn't labelled, but I knew him straight away. He was my very own loss. I did not choose him, as you might hope to choose a lifetime companion, but I have grown to know him in his ways. He is clammy and demanding. He smells. He has a habit of turning up at key moments, graduation ceremonies, dates, in bed. He really loves Christmas. Every year he sits in the middle of the table among the turkey and the roast potatoes, a centerpiece. Later, he moves to the Christmas tree and sits there for days as the pine needles fall around him. He has no special allegiance to time or place. He seeps into all festivals and celebrations seamlessly. My loss is outgoing, sometimes embarrassingly so. 
He forces himself onto people I've only just met and cuts into conversations that do not concern him. He has a weakness for alcohol. I can almost guarantee that at the end of any drunken evening, my loss will turn up tearful, angry, determined not to be left at home. People are very kind about him. They are intrigued at first. He reminds them of their own losses and they pity him. But my older friends must have tired of him some time ago. I think they must wonder why I haven't brought him up better, why I haven't made more of an effort to control him or to make him fend for himself. Their losses are usually left at home. I imagine they may think I bring him along on purpose, and occasionally I do. That's when he stinks the most. <laughs> I found it very helpful to read that personification of loss. Mm. Um, as in, I thought, gosh, I wish I'd read this a few years ago. It, I felt it would be a practical and helpful way. How did you, I mean, do, is it something that you continue to think of? Is it something that helps you? That was a very strange piece of writing. Um, I'd got to a point in writing this book when someone else I love died. Um, and I couldn't write anything, um, and so I was thinking I and I, I turned off every mobile phone device and stopped looking at it. And I was just sitting in a room, and that just came. Mm -hmm. It arrived, and uh, the sense of uh, how I from uh, it was extremely helpful for me to articulate my guilt about the way I was conscious. I've always felt about performing loss, that mm. as a child, from very early age, I was, after he died, I was aware that sometimes at school I was quite proud of being the person with the dead dad, that it was something I could proffer at parties, and then that felt terrible, that it made me special, um, and that I was aware that, oh, God, I've just told someone. It still happens. It happened yesterday. I was in the middle of a conversation. I thought, oh, God, I've just told someone about my dead dad. It's just like, how tiresome, <laughs> how utterly tiresome. Um, so, yeah, it was, but I have um, a friend who's a psychologist who told me that this is, unbeknownst to me, a common method of making, dealing with a trauma, of giving it a shape. Um, so, and I have found it very useful mm -hmm. to, um, for explaining, for example, to my husband who, um, and has now lost both his parents but didn't experience childhood bereavement, which is no more or no less painful, but just different. Um, but it was a way of showing him this is it's kind of always here mm. and uh, sitting around. And my um, best friend, it was her father who bent down in the hall to say it's probably not going to be all right because mm -hmm. he lost his mum at age seven. Mm. And, that's, he knew, and that was really the most helpful thing an adult said to me. A lot of people said, you're a grown-up now which was very difficult. Mm. Um, so I thought I was, but he said, it's not going to be all right. Um, why was I saying that about? Um, yeah, she said to me, she read it, and she said, oh, and she's now suffered her own bereavement. She said, oh, it's great. Now our, lo she said, our, our losses can hang out with a box set now, <laughs> and we can go out. It's just given us a code yeah. that, <laughs> that we can go out. Suppose, and a number of people have kind of said, talked about, yeah, maybe they need to bring their loss out a bit more or yeah. leave them at home or... Yeah. Learn to be kind yeah. to that self. Learn to be kind yeah. to that damaged self. And I, I even know kind of what he looks like much more clearly now. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I feel I just want to pause for this moment while we all consider our losses and how we can maybe imagine them and, again, be kind to that bit of ourselves. Um, would you tell us about Tosca? Have I got that right? Tosca. Is that the Border Melancholy? Yes. I don't know what I can remember about the Border Melancholy Cafe. I've obviously is... doubted my own self because wow. I've also written down page 109. Well, let's um, see what happens with Tosca. Oh, um, here we go, and it's a Nabokov quote, so you can look at my underlined bit if you like. Um, my... Um, no single word in English, writes Nabokov, renders all the shades of the oh, Russian yeah. Tosca. Yeah. Um, boredom. Yeah, my, um, the audio book, I was asked whether I wanted to read the audio book, and I'd read a bit about reading audio. Did you read the audio book of yours? I didn't read my first book, I did read my second, uh -huh. which actually, I, I loved reading my second book. I wouldn't have been capable of reading the first one at that time. Though yeah. I quite, now I would like to do it. I, I, I think so much of writing about grief, whether that's in a memoir or whether that's in a diary or whether it's letters to people, it's, a, it's an evolving, it continually evolves. And I do now feel I've probably reached the point where I would be able to read aloud my mm. first book. But back then, even though I'd written it, I, there's no way I could have done. Yeah. But yeah, I was asked whether I wanted to, to read mine and I uh, thought, I think this is a skill I don't have and I also don't, it doesn't exist to me uh, hourly. Every, it has a soundtrack because many sort of the first chapter is has the soundtrack of Bill Withers' Lovely Day um, and lots of different 1980s bits of pop, but it's mm. not spoken, which I think is it couldn't be spoken yet. Mm -hmm. um, but so therefore, I asked whether my friend, who's an actress, could read it <laughs> in the days before I got constant WhatsApp messages because it has lots of Russian words in it which were fine to write out but I'd never encountered the yeah. thought <laughs> she was like thanks Soph <laughs> and this one <laughs> holy Moses how are we going to do this one so yeah Tosca so um, I realised it was a good move not to have to read this out myself um, um, but I think that, yeah, Nabokov talks about no single word in English renders all the shade of Russian Tosca, nostal which is sort of nostalgia, lovesickness, but also ennui and boredom. Uh, and I think, I think I was interested in, in that idea of how, how we might exist thinking about our lives and yearning for other lives, mm -hmm. that constant desire to be somewhere else or to escape and I think it goes back to that conversation we're having at the beginning about mm -hmm. what's the plot where's the plot yeah I've lost it mm -hmm. yeah but um I, I also think in some ways it's uh, peculiar because that the sense of uh, real maternal ambivalence which might actually have been a kind of borderline postnatal depression that I experienced mm -hmm. the GP said she gave this book to someone after having children because it is a complete for me it was a complete mm. loss of self and loss of time and trying to find out. I felt hugely lonely. Um, yeah, so that, that sense of it's, it now feels to me quite a long time ago, mm. that utter absorption and thinking there are two people that I have to keep alive. Yeah. I love them dearly. I'm very happy they exist, but I, the day I, our son, when he was born, I was in hospital for 10 days uh, because they weren't sure he was well. And finally, my husband said, you should go for a walk. And I went outside and I just howled because mm -hmm. I realised I am I can no longer I've left the hospital but I have not left the hospital because I am now attached and it wasn't 
it wasn't a happy feeling, and and that is something that is difficult to admit. It was I was terrified by this feeling of con now constant attachment, um, which is why that sense of trains um, is such an escape. And I've lot had lots of discussions with people I've bumped into about our love for trains and the adventure and the excitement, but for me it's also, no one can get at me. <laughs> I am actually now moving in my, and this, this literal compartment has a wonderful kind of resemblance to a kind of emotional compartment. Yeah. And for someone who has to a certain degree hardened because of experiences, it's, it's, it's a retreat to be able mm -hmm. to be in that place sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the umbilical cord doesn't ever get, in my experience, doesn't get cut. I mean, it just gets replaced with an invisible umbilical cord. Do you think, like, feels... even when they go on honeymoon? Do I, I, I was just wondering at what point I can stop. Yeah, apparently feeling. not. No? I talked to, no, and, no. Um, and yeah. uh, I do yeah. remember a time when, I said, well, I'm, I'm, it's so interesting, isn't it, about how children age? Because even in the, so I first read Sophie's book as a pre-publication copy, I mean, probably a year ago, over a year ago, maybe. And even when I read it yesterday, I thought, even in that time, for me, my own relationship with my son has changed. And the, all that she writes so brilliantly about that, that, that bind of motherhood. But actually, it's a, it's a memory now so much, rather than, because as he gets older, I feel differently. But I remember this time lying in bed, uh, worrying about him for some reason. And I suddenly thought, what if he goes on a fucking gap year? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just this sudden terror. And I thought... It's forever. It's not yeah. going to stop. I just don't well, worry in a different way. One day it's like he won't eat his porridge. And then the next day it's that it'll be other things and it's forever. And then yeah. this dread, this utter thing of like, why did nobody tell me about this? What have I done? Mm. Um, what have I done? But at the moment, again, I'm feeling... And so if somebody had asked me for my... And then, of course, you're stuck in the thing that, given that you've had this child, I think it's very bad form to moan about them and yeah. say that you wish you hadn't. So yeah. I never would have admitted it when I actually felt that way. But mm. I did often yeah. feel that way. What have I done? And I'm stuck because I can't get out of it. And I'm not mad enough to have him taken away by officials. Mm. So I'm just stuck. But I don't feel that way anymore. So, if, so to anybody who asked my honest advice about having children during the kind of, yes. <laughs> for about a seven year period, when I said don't, I would now change my mind and say, it's really nice when they're about nine. <laughs> but I do think that, 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 that it, it is, you feel that one couldn't articulate that honestly, because yeah. obviously it, it, is, it, is, it is taboo to talk about that ambivalence. Yeah. It's not, you know, there was, I, I talk very clearly about the, moments of joy and the moments of and the, the miraculousness. A lot of this is about mother, kind of love, my father's love for me and mine for my children. And it's interesting how uh, in, in grief, one relives past grief. You write mm. so brilliantly about how as your son gets older, it comes closer mm. to your brother and how we relive that, those acts. And, and perhaps actually among among the things that I was finding difficult about parenting was, uh, I, I, and I still find this really difficult, as the children get older, I realize again and again what I lost. Um, and so uh, when our daughter in particular was three, I'm looking at my husband thinking, what would it be like if, if um, my Andrew was to disobey? And that, that just, I'm thinking, that's not okay. And I know I'm going to find it incredibly difficult again. Well, I don't know. I imagine that when at 13, mm -hmm. when she's 13, this is going to be extremely, it's sort of, and, 
um, reliving things in different ways is, is intriguing to me. Um, reliving space, because I read um, Kathy's amazing last act of love after, long after um, writing this, I wasn't going to read other people's accounts for fear of sort of merging my mm -hmm. stories with theirs, but I was really struck by this sense of how we retrod the same space, mm. um, this sense of if you can't go back in time and recover what you have lost, you can tread, retread space. Mm. And uh, maybe we've all experienced that peculiar sense of revisiting mm. the ground. I went back to um, the hospice. So that I described my father lying in the chapel of rest. Uh, and it was in a particular bit of London. And I was in that bit of London. And I thought, shall I go back there? the place and see what that's yeah. like. I thought I can do that. And so I kind of, and I got to the door, I thought, oh God, I'm gonna go under. And so I'm standing by a lamppost, absolutely howling and thinking, and I'm pulling myself together. And I think, well, I've got this far, it would be good to go in, but why am I going, why do I want yeah. to go in? So I'm standing there, shall I go in, shall I go in? And I think I know that if I go in, I am going to open my mouth and all I'm going to do is start crying. And I'm going to think, who's the crazy lady just walks in and says to the desk, but I'll go in. You go to the desk, start crying, and then finally I say, my father died here in 1988. And he just handed me a large box of tissues. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'll take you to the quiet room. Yeah. Um, and indeed, actually, it turned out that the quiet room used to be the chapel of rest. So I'm just going to put that on the table in case that's causing the sound. Um, and that was an extraordinary experience of being in the same physical space and like rather like trying to be in the same physical space as Anna Karenina, what happens? Mm -hmm. Have you found that as well, revisiting yeah. space? I mean, I think we circle our losses and I think more of us do it than we think. So I think oh, like when you reach that professional, they knew what to do with you, didn't they? Mm. Which is, and actually sometimes it's no more than a box of tissues. This is the quiet room. But I think because of the way life works, I do wonder myself, is it because I read too many novels? Is it just the consumerist promise of life? Perfect happiness is just the next purchase away and we're all going to be okay. So I think everybody, everyone is affected by loss, or almost, mm. and all of us are hiding it from each other in an attempt to be upstanding citizens doing the right thing. But basically, as soon as you accept, like that whole thing, because you're worried that if, because you do have people that if you said, I'm upset about my father dying, and they said, when did he die? And you said 1988. There are people out there in the world who are not professionals who say something like, well, that's a long time. Ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was the. You it was know, I so spent long so ago many... they couldn't even find him in the book. He was turning back the pages. Yeah, <laughs> and so, but I think that if you are if you are with your tribe, whether that's professional grief people or other people who have lost, everybody understands that time doesn't. It's the old time is a healer thing. It sort of is, but it sort of isn't, mm. and it's much more complex than that. And we circle and we circle around. And I think the good thing, really, about writing or reading about grief or being with professionals. Is you, I just always feel a lot better about it when I'm with, because I just think, oh, I'm not the only nutcase that's still preoccupied with this long ago death. Mm. There are lots of people out there who, if they revisited the place, if you went back to your own hospice, if you went back to your version of 1988, if you went back to your version of Sophie's dad, to your version of my brother, we, we write, I mean, any second now, we're all just going to be sitting around in a circle crying <laughs> and passing each other the tissues. And I think that has a consoling nature to it. Mm. Um, I, I, I mean, I have found to sh share, and everybody has their own way. I mean, I know also lots of people would hate sitting around in a circle crying communally. Personally, 
I quite like it these days. <laughs> but yeah. I think we should take some audience questions. Yeah. Um, shall we do that? Absolutely. Do, I think we have a nice little microphone. And you can ask from the big to the small as well. Yeah. Obviously, we've been talking about the big life movements just now, but you can also ask about and the yeah. handbags. And or this is called an exhibition of myself, the subtitle. You can ask anything. At what point did you actually share what you were writing with your husband? Because it is obviously a really tricky thing to do. I mean, I have considered doing a sort of similar thing, but I'm just not brave enough because I've got a husband and an ex-husband. And, you know, either of them could be quite um, um, upset by, you know, things that I've written. I've written some fictional things, and even that... Uh, there's a particular story I would I've said to my kids you can read it but please don't show your dad because I think he'd find it you know upsetting mm. so there, there was obviously a point was it your first draft or once you'd got to the end of it it's a really it's a really central question it's a really yeah. good and there's a, a something I write I said one of the problems of telling your story is the innumerable risks you take with the lives of others um, so part of this was, as I said, my story to write about my, my father, my loss, my grief, but part of it is about kind of the losses that are involved in being married as well as the gains. And a, a quite very candid account, I talk about marital sex and how kind of a sort of straight kind of, I, I, quite an irritation and thinking about someone else. Um, I spoke to my husband before I really started writing and said, I'd like to write about marriage and I'd like to write about it honestly. Um, so no one's gonna write, kind of want to hear some sort of Facebook, Instagram account of how much we love each other. Uh, I said, and I might write a bit about sometimes thinking about other people, is that okay? And do you ever, and we never really had a conversation about it. We kind of talked a bit about exes, but not very, it was very sort of, and uh, he said, just write whatever you want. He said, as long as it sells. <laughs> uh, and so that was so that honestly is what his first response and then so a year later I'd written pretty much the whole first draft and I said you need to read this um, he read it we were in France on holiday with the children so he read it at night he's an insomniac so he was reading into the night I usually go to sleep but I couldn't sleep because I could see he was making his way through the A4 pages turning them and he was, there were tears rolling down his face. He was reading about mine. He said, this is beautiful, so. He said, this is what you were, you were meant to write this. But I said, but what page are you on? <laughs> uh, and then uh, it went on. And I, was, and I actually thought, um, what if I've blown our marriage apart? What, what have I done? And is this, uh, is this worth it? And I, when I talked to a friend of kind, of, at kind of maybe before, and she said, it's interesting. We, we, we can risk what we value. And I thought, is this another risk-taking behavior. Why don't I just explode my marriage? What have I done? Um, he finished it and he said, there's a bit where I describe our marriage in, in the sort of itemized way and I talk about blood and I said the bride was wearing this and the groom weighed that. And so he finished that. He said, do I weigh that much? <laughs> and I, I calculated it into stone. He said, oh, that's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but he, um, he said he was absolutely fine with it. He is a GP and he hears a lot of people's secrets. A lot of people's secrets. And I think one of the great privileges that those who are uh, people of faith, uh, uh, who hear stories, uh, kind of rabbis or vicars, uh, or imams who hear stories, or, or doctors, 
or councillors or publicans. They hear things that other people don't hear and have actually a much broader sense of what we are like. Uh, Andrew also put on um, a song by the Divine Comedy, plainly called There Have Been Other People in Your Life. Just sort of that sense of the layeredness. And he said, makes you more interesting. So I don't know, I think part, it is actually this book is a love story about him. And, and because what I gained in writing this, I lost, uh, I lost that uh, perhaps that he had that ideal sense he might have had that I only ever think about him. But what we gained was openness, um, and perhaps it would it, may, it has made the marriage actually much easier. Other people, there are still other stories about other people who are impacted by it. It is very, it's kind of dangerous, difficult, tormenting territory. But it was really, I have experienced quite a lot of loss and lost objects and lost people. I felt I had to have the right to write my story. I didn't want someone else to take that from me. Thank you. Wonderful question, wonderful answer. It's a big, complex area. Yes. Hi, um, Sophie. It's really refreshing, and both of you, to hear about things that we don't talk about. And, um, you know, I've read Cathy's book, which has really helped me this year. Um, I, my father died, well, I wasn't as young as you, but I remember talking about him a lot initially when it happened. And actually, if I'm given the opportunity now, <laughs> I will. And I wonder if it's sometimes also that you want that memory to step, you know, you don't want that person to actually have disappeared out mm -hmm. of people's memories or even your own memory because, you know, he was the person, you know, who really loved me. Mm. And actually, he died very suddenly. And it's still, I mean, I'm 68 now. He died when <laughs> I was 30. And it still, hurt, you know, it still is very raw. Mm. But I think that's because um, sometimes it's a, if you have a long period of leading up to somebody's death, you can maybe relate. You know, you can sort of do it in a different. If it's very yes. sudden, mm. uh, it's also my mother died very suddenly as well on holiday. Yes. So I've had two big bereavements, which I find, you know, have been hard. But I want to treasure and cherish their memories mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I talk about them to my grandchildren and actually they're sprinkled on the golf course down the road <laughs> oh. so I've moved down to Cornwall and I, I feel spiritually that maybe they pulled me down here but mm -hmm. um, so that's quite reassuring in a way I think they're around me but um, <laughs> and actually I it, it's interesting about the train because I had a big dream after my father died and it was on a train mm. and there was uh, it was like a wake and it, it was so real. I really remember it still. And I can remember him giving me a big hug. But he said, I'm all right. And that was amazing because, actually, it was like a voice from beyond. But I don't know if you've ever experienced that sort of thing. But um, it, it, was, it was very comforting. And it still is, actually. So do you feel you're... Are you keeping your father with you, the memories of him, by writing, do you think? Um, yeah, I didn't, um, I think that's really beautiful what you said about that sense of almost curation um, and that that's in remembering that we can hold. I talk a lot about holding and having something to hold. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that, 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 again, I didn't set out to write a book about the effects of childhood bereavement on a subsequent life. That's what I ended up doing. 
I didn't write it in order to do a solo. That wasn't what I set out to do. It has actually ended up being that because I now do have something tangible that I can hold um, in the sense of this, this object that not everything has disappeared. And I actually got quite a lot of pleasure from imagining my father's other lives. I even decide, kind of, I start fantasizing about kind of think things and I write about that and I realize that one can do that and fill in gaps, even if they're not true, literally, they can be true mm. metaphorically. Um, my friend David died very suddenly while I was writing this, and that's what floored me, and he wasn't, and I can't, and the unimaginable trauma of sudden death was something I had not experienced, and then I became aware of how different that was not to have any opportunity to say one's goodbyes, and I had a new complete awe for anyone who has experienced what you've experienced or what Cathy experienced, mm -hmm. that sense of suddenness. And I try and write about those two different kinds of loss, of one like slowly ebbing away and the other like there's a hole in the ground where a building was. You keep walking around it, looking for it and trying to go to it, mm -hmm. but it's gone. It's disappeared. But not because they're, in, they're as you say, spiritually here. Tragically, my friends, uh, we are out of time. I feel we could carry on this conversation forever. Believe me, we have only scratched the surface of this wonderful book. We haven't talked about what Tolstoy kept on his desk. We haven't talked much about Cape Field. There's trains in all sorts of other countries to explore. There's lots more about loss. There's even more about fish fingers. Um, <laughs> Sophie will be signing in the book tent. I will have the great honour of being back here at one o'clock with Deborah Mogak. Now, sadly, I think the event is sold out. Sadly, for those of you who are, whose wet appetites I'm now going to enrage. But we will be talking more about dishwashers in the <laughs> ultimate best possible way. So um, can I thank you for being delightful and thank Sophie Ratcliffe. Thank you.